Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and uh, boy, are you in luck today because I have here a guy who has achieved remarkable things in not just one, but two entirely different fields. Percy Diaconis dropped out of high school and ran away from home when he was 14 years old to become a great magician. He apprenticed with a legendary sleight-of-hand artist, Dave Vernon, and before long, he himself had made a name as a master of card magic. And then, in his 20s, he decided to start over. He'd become fascinated by the mathematical principles behind certain card tricks. So he went back to school and uh, proved to be as good at math as he was at magic. He ended up getting into the Ph.D. program at Harvard and becoming a world-class statistician, an expert on uh, probability and mathematical techniques for dealing with it. So uh, that stuff I said earlier about Percy excelling in two entirely different arenas, well, in his case, uh, there are some pretty deep connections between the math and the magic that he'd been doing. Even though he long ago gave up being a professional magician, they say that Percy can still work wonders with a deck of cards, and he is a respected elder in the magic community. His friends include such well-known magicians as Ricky Jay. But uh, if you are expecting that I'm going to have him do some conjuring for our benefit in this show, well, I knew better than to ask him. He doesn't like to do tricks on command, and besides, he had a medical excuse. He'd just returned from the south of France, where he had gotten a finger badly mashed up in a car door. Thankfully, a full recovery is expected, and the wounded digit will once again press to digitate, but it was heavily swaddled in bandages when I met him at Stanford University, where he's been a professor since the 1970s. I'm glad you're okay, but I guess your your ledger domain is not so great these yeah, days. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, although it's one-handed. No. <laughs> you could probably do a lot with one yeah, hand. That's, that's true. I, I once worked with a one-handed magician um, who was a wonderful guy. He lost an, an arm, and he did a stand-up act in close-up magic with one hand, and um, I had a very good idea for him, which made him, in a certain sense, into a store, because the way he worked was with a slack arm, and, and I said, you know what to do? is to get a fake arm, put it behind you, and instead of being this poor cripple who does amazing things, it's the guy who does all of his magic <laughs> with one hand. And he became a real star, uh, Rene Levand. Uh, did he follow your advice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. Makes, it makes a big difference instead of this poor cripple. Really? You know, it's the guy who does all of his magic he with one hand. He chooses to. Right, and he had the hand, at my suggestion, be so that it, it, it was behind his back during the act, but when he came out to take a bow, it was in front here. So, so you know, just as if, you know, leave him guessing. <laughs> You're reminding me of the Steve Martin act. Was it the great Flydini? Oh, I was involved with that. You were in Involved with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he has all these things happening, uh, coming out of his fly. Right. Um, again, not using his hands, <laughs> but he was really using his hands. I was, I was involved with that. <laughs> you were? He had a fake yeah. arm, right? Yeah. And he used yeah. his real yeah. arm down yeah. his shirt to yeah. manipulate things. That's all true. And, and <laughs> we had plotted out an ending for it. Uh, you've seen it. If you type in Flydini, you, you find it. But we plotted out an ending for it, which he did for a while. You know, the piece of material came he was doing a european tour and uh, he said i need a seven minute piece that i can do you know and, and so we we with ricky jay and peter pitt uh, uh framed this thing out and uh and i had a wonderful idea for the from you know he's pulling stuff out of his fly and, and at some sta stage his pant leg starts coming up and he's pulling his pants out through his fly now that's <laughs> topologically impossible but 
you know, if you want to look like that, you could look like that. And so he's then, now Steve Martin's the kind of guy who can be there in a loud pair of undershorts and it's not tacky, it's funny, you yes. know. And so, and then I once saw a clown in the circus take a pair of pants and jump into a pair of pants. And I thought that would be a great ending because it's all this goofy stuff. But then if at the end you get boom and he's got, and so he went to circus school, he learned to jump into a pair of pants and when Steve Martin Incorporated wants to do something, I mean, you know, they had two pairs of pants made, 7,000 a piece, and, and he did that for a while. He doesn't do it on the video clip, but it was a very good ending because it's, whoa, you know, instead of, oh, that's funny, you know, it was right. some real talent. Piece. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, by the way, I think I, I want to correct the record because I haven't seen this in years, but I said he wasn't using his hands. What he is doing is using a hand to, to pull objects out of his fly. One hand. One, one hand. And they include even a wine glass with wine in it. And Pavarotti singing. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, his, he has a fake arm, uh, so you think he's not using his other hand, but in fact he is. And <laughs> so we, how, won't discuss that. we won't discuss that. No. So how did you get to know Steve Martin? Oh, the, he's on the magic scene, but uh, through, through my friend Ricky Jay. He's best friends with... Uh, with Jay and friends with other people. He used to be, uh, he did a little bit of nightclub magic and, uh, you know, back in when we were all younger. You, you and Ricky Jay are, are friends and you collaborators are. sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you show each other, you know, your latest ideas? We do. You do. Share? We, we, we share technical things. We share problems. Is there a special bond between guys like you? I mean, who's, whose act involves keeping secrets from the vast majority of people. Is there a special bond between... Yeah, sure, because magicians really don't explain secrets, as you'll find out if you ask me how was that done. <laughs> and uh, uh, so when we get to hang out with other people for whom we're, we can be open about it. Now, I'm sort of famous among magicians for keeping secrets even from other magicians. And uh, if you're in Paris, uh, there's a wonderful store, uh, the oldest magic shop in France. It's called Mayette uh, Magic. And uh, if you look in their window, they put out a journal, and you'll see my picture on the front cover of the journal, and it's the the most secretive man in magic. <laughs> you know, nowadays, magic secrets have become... You know, very, very common. You can look on the internet and get anything explained. You can look on Wikipedia. And a contribution that I can make is to remind people that there are secrets. Ricky is also very secretive, and we love to try to fool each other. But I'm one of his uh, backroom guys and, and help out, and it's a great pleasure. There are still things that neither you nor he would share with each other, right? Yeah, that's true. The uh, best we, stuff. Well, I don't know. I mean... <laughs> We have a we have a kind of deal when we see each other. We try to actually do the tricks for each other and present them and practice them and not just say, and then you do this or that, but actually do it and try to fool the other guy. Wow. Uh, wow. It must feel really good if you could fool someone of that caliber. Or it feels bad when you don't. Uh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> you think, oh, damn it. You are a collector of old books on magic. Guilty as charged. And what's the oldest one that we know of? It's complicated to answer, but I'll do the brief version. Um, so the, the first two published books that are wholly about magic uh, or have big magic sections are uh, from 1584. There, there's a book in French by Prévost, uh, and there's a book in English, Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, and uh, they, they came out the same year. 
And they're our kind of first books now. Nothing's ever first. You can find snippets here and there. You can find descriptions of magic tricks earlier. The Romans had, you know, descriptions of cups and balls performers. But mm. the first two books are, are uh, 1584. And uh, one is very, very rare. There may be six known copies. That's the French book. It's... Uh, a conjuring manual that tells you what to say and how to buy, where to buy stuff and and how to stand and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, the other is a book which was against witchcraft, Scott's discovery of witchcraft. And at that time, people were burning witches. And Scott said, listen, just because somebody is awkward or talks in tongues or seems out of their mind doesn't mean they're in league with the devil. And you're torturing these people who, you know, there's nothing wrong with them except mentally they're off. And in the middle of it, he says, and, you know, there are these people who do magic tricks and they're going to kill me, but I took lessons and here's how they do it. And then he describes 40 pages of, of magic tricks and very, very accurate. And most of the tricks in both books are still done today. Ricky and I have a theory that there's almost nothing new in magic, that almost all tricks go way, way back and then go back before, you know, 1584 that just haven't been written about so much and... Uh, I once tried to estimate how many tricks there were based on those two books. So let me, so that's an interesting thing. It'll get us into a minute of statistics. But first, let me introduce your book good, by, good. by title. This is Magical Mathematics, The Mathematical Ideas That Animate Great Magic by you and Ron Graham, another magician slash mathematician. Um, and it's a detailed uh, mathematical description of some amazing tricks. So in it is a... <laughs> Honestly, I looked at that in the book. I looked at this thing. Now I'm going to estimate how many magic tricks exist. And I thought, this itself is a con. This has got to be some kind of con. <laughs> no, no, but you know, it's a, it's a standard thing. It was developed during World War II. The easiest way to explain it is you want to you wanna estimate how many fish are in a lake, which is how you can't go swimming and do it. You know, how many fish are in a lake? So what you do is take a big net, catch some fish. Paint all their tails blue. Okay, that's easy to do. Throw the fish back in the lake. Wait a couple of days. Take a big net. Catch some fish. Count how many blue fish are in the catch that you made. Mm. There'll be some that are blue, some not. From that information, uh, you know, from the two numbers that how many how many you captured, how many were painted blue, you can estimate how many fish are in the lake. And uh, it makes some sense if you think about it. If there are a lot of fish in the lake, given that they swim around the, on the second time, if you know, if you've just caught a few of them, you shouldn't have hardly any blue ones. Mm -hmm. If there are very few fish in the lake, you should, you know, then maybe have mostly blue ones. So the amount of blues that are in your second sample really does tell you a lot about how many fish are in the lake. Yeah, I mean, assuming they're they're really mixing right. randomly throughout right. the lake. And A and B that they're not <laughs> saying here comes that damn net again, you know, because that, you know, but so yeah. we use that principle um when we're about to have uh, every 10 years the US government has a census and uh and there's a, a tremendous problem with undercount in the census. Uh they miss something like 7% of the population. The numbers are big enough so it can cost you a state a representative. It's hundreds of millions of dollars can ride on 7% of the population. They would like to estimate how many people they missed. You know, that is, they took their census, they did the best they could, and now how many people that they missed. Now, they know that they're missing more illegal aliens and people in big cities than in the middle of Iowa. Yes, yes, yes. 
And so what they do is they take a second census and they look and see how many, you know, it, in a small area, but in several areas, maybe 30, and they count, look at how many people did they get in the second census who weren't in the first census. <laughs> and that's just like the fish in the lake. And it makes the same assumptions, a- absolutely. which may be wrong. Which, oh, oh, completely wrong, <laughs> but we have ways of trying to test if those assumptions are reasonable uh, by looking at coverage. So when I did it with Magic Tricks, um, I had these two sources, Prevost's book, which had, I'm going to say, you know, 80 tricks in it, and Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which had 60 tricks in it. And you can say, well, suppose that there are some number of tricks, and these people pick tricks from the list more or less at random. Now, that's a big assumption, probably not true. You don't need that they both did it, but you need some kind of assumption like that. And then you can look at how many tricks they have in common. And there were not very many tricks in common. There were maybe eight tricks in common or ten. And so from that, you can estimate how many magic tricks there were. And the estimate we got was something like, you know, 600 or something like that. Maybe, maybe you know, plus or minus, you know, a few hundred. But you get some idea of how many tricks there were. And then you can think, is that reasonable? And I don't know. Anyway. I like it. I like it. Uh, you know, and again, I'd add one assumption that we're talking about how many magic tricks there were in the circle that these two guys uh, absolutely. occupied. And it was, would have been different if I was looking at tricks that medicine men in Africa did. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, and that is, uh, that is a problem. But, but at least it gave me some ballpark number that, you know, okay, if it's wrong, even by a factor of two. So it wasn't 10,000. It, it's more than 100, you know. It's, uh, it, 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 and it's, I kind of, I buy it. Uh, uh. It also, you know, it's also a nice thing to include in the book because it reveals something about you, uh, <laughs> you and Ron, I guess. I mean, uh, these are guys who take something that most people would think was beyond quantification, and guess what? They're not daunted by that. They start figuring out ways, you know, and it's that kind of, um, I don't know, mathematical chutzpah, I think, that makes someone like you. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, and we, we put a plus or minus number on, on our guess, and if you look at it, it's pretty wide. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, uh, and I put, in, I put in all the caveats, and now somebody else has found uh, another early book from that period, and you can, you can get some kind of verification. And uh, Also, Magic Scholarship has gone off the charts in the last, well, I don't know how many years, but I'll say 20. Um, there's no academic research into history of, of magic at all. There's been, you know, never was a thesis. There never was. Uh, wow. And, and, you know, popular entertainment, is a field or a department sure. on yeah. popular culture. Yeah. There have been books by historians who dabble and said, oh, I'll do something about, about, about magic, but they don't know magic. And they, you know, so they're historians and it's just, and they're, they're serious students of magic who try to do history, but they're not historians. But in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of digging up of sources that aren't books on their own, but they're books that'll have three tricks in them. And there's stuff that's being discovered that's going pretty far back. And um, so if I had nothing else to do, I could try to flush out my list of 600 and try to <laughs> see whether I could actually put, you know, put put names to them and give descriptions of them. Uh, <laughs> you said something interesting about the um, one of the two ancient books, the 16th century books that you were talking about, Scott's book, mm-hmm. that it was simultaneously trying to take a rational look at the witchcraft scare, and it had magic tricks. Right. And it points to this kind of 
uh, long, very long uh, fellowship between skepticism and kind of rational, objective inquiry and magic. We see that now. I mean, there's guys like you. A lot of debunkers have magic. James, James Randi. Right? James Randi, the great Randi. Uh, you know, Martin Gardner to some extent, a guy you knew. Uh, sure. No, but uh, he, was, he did both with great elan and, and enthusiasm. And I was Randi's assistant when I was a kid. Uh, that was wonderful. He was uh, in New York uh, as a performing escape artist. And uh, when I was 13, I used to go hang around with him, and he would do these jail breaks where, you know, he would go to a jail and be strip-searched and and then get out of the cell. And I was a kid assistant, and I'd look at the jail cell and go to the car and find some keys that matched and stick them under the bars with wax, and they were very carefully inspecting Randy. <laughs> Nobody was looking at me. And, uh, uh, he was a, he's a brilliant, just, interesting man. He just betrayed man. his secret yeah. right here on Radio yeah. Percy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that those secrets are all out there, and uh, Randy's gone way beyond that. He's a very funny character. He's a brilliant man. He never had proper schooling, but he you know, built his own radio when he was a kid. And uh, uh, But one of the stories I love about Randy is uh, he was hanging around the magic shops. That's what kids do, and uh, this was when he was about 20. He was a straitjacket escape guy, and so he would get strapped into a straitjacket, and it was hoisted up on a burning rope, and then he would get out just before something. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't just before something. The rope broke, and bam, in a, in a straitjacket, you know, 30 feet down onto concrete. And so he broke his, you know, pelvis, and he had a complete body cast on. Okay, but then he had a loose Hawaiian shirt over it, and you kind of couldn't see. And he was in the magic shop in this body cast, and some newcomer would come into the shop, some guy who wanted to buy a trick for his kid, and the magicians in the shop would wink at each other, and Randy would try to do a card trick, and the cards would drop on the floor, and they'd say, oh, you did it again, into the corner, you, and then they'd throw darts into his back, <laughs> and the guy would leave. <laughs> That's the Randy I know. <laughs> I said the great Randy. Wasn't it the amazing? Was it the, the amazing Randy. The amazing Randy. Randy. His tagline. Now, somebody's just, he's just in the news again. He's always in the news. But Deepak Chopra, he's a popular character of yeah, some yeah. sort. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, Alternative so Randy. medicine. Right. Apparently, he has, a, cha he has a, a challenge out. Randy has this million, now a million dollars. used to be 10,000 when I was around. Uh, he has a million dollar challenge for anybody who can do anything. And apparently, Deepak Chopra is saying, I want a shot at the million. And uh, I don't know. but I, I, What's I the challenge? I, 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 well, Randy has an offer of... Some amount of money, I think it's now a million dollars, for anyone who can show that the you know laws of science you know can be gotten around, that somebody can read a mind or make an object float or do something mm -hmm. that isn't explained by natural law. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of complicated, but um, uh, you know to define, but yes, he has the conditions <laughs> set up and and they'll make a clear challenge and uh, and, and Deepak uh, is going to uh, throw down the gauntlet and that, levitate or uh, something. That's what somebody just told me. I haven't wow. I haven't checked it out, well, but we'll uh, have to see my my money's on Randy. He's very very clever uh, at at detecting fraud and at uh, he he's not bound by you know I'm an academic so. I can say, you know, if somebody says, you know, ask me a question, have, have I ever, you know, what do I think about parapsychology? I say, well, I've done a lot of investigation. Every time I've looked, you know, it, it hasn't stood up to test. And Randy would say, it's just baloney. Mm. 
you know, and so I, I'm, I, I don't talk like that, but uh, he does, and the world needs some of that, too. Who's the tougher audience? A group of scientists who are natural skeptics and like to test each other's theories and shoot them down, or an audience of magicians? That's a good question. That's a good question. Let's just think about that. <laughs> um, there are so many foolish scientists. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, no, we are experts in our own domain, and then you get to thinking you're an expert in in nearby domains. When I f started teaching at Stanford, um, Linus Pauling uh, oh boy, yeah. was around, yeah. and, he was, and he was very keen on vitamin C. And he got in touch with me and said, well, you're a skeptical guy if I can get you to help you know, test things out. And he came and gave a talk at the statistics department, but he just was a complete fool about science in this instance. That is, if the studies went against him, he'd say, I know it's true. There has to be a flaw. We're going to do another study. And he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And uh, it was shocking to see, you know, a guy with two Nobel prizes. I know. Uh, yeah. Just, and, and Shockley uh, was another one yes. who was around, and Nobel Prize, Nobel helped invent Prize, the transistor. invented the transistor, and but he was convinced that, well, put it, you know, blandly, people of color were not on the same par of intelligence, and he said, well, the evidence goes in this direction, and he came to me and said, you know, you're here, I know you from Bell Labs, you're a well-known skeptic, if I can get you to help me look at the data, and I didn't even want to be seen talking to him, <laughs> because, I mean, he was a nut job, and one of, the, one of the things, I mean, just as a typical story, was there was some IQ data that Cyril Burt uh, had collected of, of twins, Bert had analyzed the data, but the analysis was flawed. And and then when people wanted to look at his data, Bert said uh, that the data was burned, you know, and he'd lost the data, whatever that meant. And Shockley said, well, I know how to, you know, restructure that data and we can make our own version of the data and we can redo the test. And I said, you know, Shockley... Whatever you do with that data, nobody's going to believe it. I don't want to waste my time. You shouldn't waste your time. It's crazy. And, uh, and he went and found another statistician. Uh, wow. He used to tape record all of our conversations in real time. Oh, he did that uh, with journalists, too. Yeah, because yeah. he said, you know, I've been misquoted so yeah, often, and yeah. I hope you don't mind, but uh, <laughs> I've, I've got you, uh, you know, and... Uh, Oi, oi, oi. So scientists beware when you wander out of an area you really know about and think that you are, well, a know-it-all. You yourself have been able to cross over domains, though, within mathematics, right? I mean, you're kind of famous for jumping into new areas and, and actually doing useful things with them. Well, you try, and uh, I'm, I'm afraid I, I have my dumb statistician act. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm working in some area, like I just before you came in, there was, there was a wonderful group of group theorists in here, and, and I say, well, look, I'm just a statistician, but do you guys think we could talk about it in a down-to-earth way? And by now, people know, but uh, uh, I try. It's awfully hard to do, and uh, I, I, the way I put it, is that I think that, in part, at any rate, I'm paid for my ability to tolerate feeling stupid. Mm -hmm. um, that is, I'm mm. always knocking on somebody's door saying, look, I, I really don't know, but if you talk to me like an undergraduate, I might be able to get something out of this, and maybe something will come out, and there's been a... It's it's tough to do because you're you know used to being a professional and competent and just to feel like a... I'm doing physics now, and I've been, I've been doing it for a while, and... 
I'm trying to learn quantum mechanics. First of all, it's, it's scandalous that I don't know quantum mechanics. It's all probability. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that I don't know it. I know it. I taught it in the physics department. Uh, I, I hooked myself into doing that. But it's different than knowing it. You know, it takes 15 years to learn a subject of, of that sort. And, and I'm just always feeling like a fool and a charlatan, but you keep going. And I wrote my first paper and published it in the physics journal. I'm very proud of myself. You make the point that statisticians know stuff, really useful stuff, that the rest of the world, including even scientists in other fields, don't know. And that, that is something I did want to ask you about. There have been, I think, a growing number of um, mathematicians, statisticians, saying that a lot of scientific uh, studies that are ultimately evaluated based on their statistical significance, mm -hmm. right? Whenever you do an experiment, you want to make sure the result isn't uh, you know, a kind of that, fluke. Exactly, <laughs> the result is not a fluke because you have done a, you've done it repetitively enough that the odds are really small that it could possibly be random. Right. And so scientists have a very simple set of tests they subject their data to, and then they get it published, and then it's good. Right. I have heard over and over again now in the recent years that a lot of scientists aren't doing this right. Well, of course, that's true. Um, that is, any tool can be misused, and statistics is easy to misuse, too, uh, especially if you're doing some black box thing and downloading some, you know, web app where you have some spreadsheet and you don't really know what you're doing, but it you put in the data and it comes out with some stars. You know, it's very different than going to a professional and, and getting a, well, of course, you have to clean up your data and begin with this. And, you know, the, you can't use this with a sample of size three. Uh, but there are other problems. And one of the most striking instances of this is a guy at Stanford, Ed Ioannidis, um, who took published findings that were a big deal in the medical sciences. Yes. He took, you know, 50 most widely cited things, and he just looked after 10 years, can they be replicated? And it was shocking how few of them could be replicated, how few of them stood up. And um, you can ask, why is that? Uh, because each one of them came with a p-value that said, you know, this passes statistical tests. The p-value says the likelihood of this being random is so small that you can trust it. Right. And yeah. uh, now, of course, those p-values are calculated under assumptions that you're – you know, not fudging your data. You're not throwing away bad data. You're, you know what I mean? You're, yeah. you're, you've just taken, taken all of the measurements that you have and then you've taken an honest average and that the average that you used, uh, is one that you, the one that you did your calculations. What people actually do in the back room is very different than that. And it's hard to know what people actually do in the back room. One place you see it. And for me, this is a, an interesting test bed. I've spent a lot of energy uh, investigating psychic phenomena and uh, people who claim to be able to read minds or do, do things like that. And for me, parapsychology is, a, is a, an area with no signal. That is, a, there, there is no parapsychology, um, but there are hundreds and hundreds of papers published every year which have significant results that that claim that somebody can guess cards at a distance or or that people can know what each other are thinking about when they're separated by great distances well if there's no signal it has to be statistical artifacts that is mm -hmm. artifacts in design people doing experiments and throwing away data that they're not telling you about people doing experiments where there's sensory leakage you know mm -hmm. if you and i are sitting in the same room 
and you're looking at cards concentrating in them and I'm trying to guess at them, maybe I can read your body English <laughs> and say something about that. And Like Hans the horse, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> Clever Hans, who is great at it, and there's always another one. So the, the claim is that that kind of, um, that kind of th- throwing away data, only, you know, doing 10 studies and only publishing your best one is rampant, in ordinary science, and um, even this, even if it's inadvertent, I yes. mean, it, there's such a tendency to look for pattern, right? That we all like to throw out things we would call noise. <laughs> oh, there has to be something wrong with this. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There has to be something wrong. With this, I'll throw this one out. You know. Right. Well, we one of the things is you know it's it's a commonplace that doctors shouldn't treat their own children. Right. You know that's just. It's common sense, right? Well, statisticians shouldn't analyze their own data. Uh, and and so I sometimes do experiments where I'm doing experiments to see, does the way you graph data affect people's perception of it? Well, of course it does. Uh, but can you prove it? You know, can you actually do an experiment? So I've done that where I, I have different ways of charting data and I ask subjects, you know, how significant do you think this is? Do you think these look correlated? You know, and I have two different ways or five different ways of graphing it. Well, if once I have that data, I know what I want the answer to come out to be. I know enough not to do my mm-hmm. own data analysis mm-hmm. and to get a friend in and mm. say, listen, you've got to look yeah, at this data. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, or maybe not even a friend, huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, well, well said. Well, you don't want them to be too adversarial. <laughs> I love the fact that we're sitting in your office. Behind you are a couple of filing cabinets. And on top of the filing cabinets are two old cardboard boxes labeled coincidences <laughs> well and see all of those file folders up there yeah those are all coincidences too let me tell you a sentence about it um when i started uh as a graduate student uh 1971 that's a long time ago my professor fred mosteller who was a great old statistician at harvard was, at harvard yeah. was fascinated by coincidences and he had started to collect them, and uh, and uh, any time there was an article in the newspaper, he would, you know, he would cut it out and try to make a little explanation for what it was. And he said, you know, you're interested in all kinds of crazy things. Would you like to work with me on the coincidence project? And I said, you know, this is great. It's you know, real coincidences move people. We wrote some papers. We had. Uh, an article on the front page of the New York Times, Professors Study Coincidences. Well, I want to tell you a theorem of Percy's. When you get your name on the front page of the New York <laughs> Times, Professor Study, you get a lot of funny letters. Oh, yeah. So we got thousands <laughs> of letters, hundreds of letters anyway, hundreds of letters. People saying, you know, I've never told anybody about this. And the clippings and our best explanations and how we were going to deal with them, they're in these folders, they're in those boxes. Oh, wow. And so you've so got people's stories. Here. I have people's stories, and then we try to make our own sense out of them. You know, how could this happen? Is it, are the laws of nature really off, or... Is there, you know, is there some uh, some explanation? Can we categorize them? Can we make sense out of them? And one of the things I'm going to do, it's my next big project, is to write that book with Fred um, and uh, to try to make sense out of out of out of these this collection of coincidences. To tell two coincidence stories, uh, um, one is uh, an NPR story, and uh, and. Uh, the other, the other's another story. Uh, but 
I think it's this American. I think it's it's what is what did Ira Glass do? What show did Ira Glass do? Well, he does This American This Life. American Life. So this was a This American Life. It wasn't him. It was some backup crew that was doing <laughs> it. But they did do a a radio show about coincidences. What did they do? They, I think they, this was Radio Lab. Yes. I think this okay. might have been the show Radio Lab. Okay. I could be wrong. You could, and you you can check it more easily <laughs> than I. Story about two girls who had. Oh, I don't know. Yes. Okay. Pro- yeah. Probably right. Yeah. So, but from my point of view, it was some. They put out a call for readers to call in with mm. weird coincidences. Mm. They had. You know, some way that readers could call into a phone line. There were maybe a thousand people who called in. They took the 20 most surprising stories, okay, and then they call back and they try to check, you know, is this just some kids having fun or can we call the, the two girls in, you know, here or there and check, did it, did it really happen? And then they called me and said, could we get you to come down to the, you know, to the radio station here at Stanford? And get your take on these coincidences. Now, that's a funny situation to be in. First of all, there are these charming stories, and just what you want to do is pour statistical salt on the wounds, <laughs> exactly. you know, and say, well, you know, really. Uh, <laughs> the ultimate wet blanket, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, and, but, but, you know, if you take the best out of a thousand, well, you've got to charge yourself for that, too. Yeah, you yeah. know, and, uh, and, but, but there was nothing that was really terribly shocking. But the annoying thing was, um, while they recorded it and some of it made it into the backup, you could, but they said, well, it ran too long and we cut out all of your negative comments. And I, oh, I was furious about it, you know. And they, they just have a sentence saying, well, thanks to Percy Diaconis for his you know, thoughtful uh, comments. And, uh, and, uh, you know, statisticians can be really difficult audiences. <laughs> <laughs> I will look it up and see for our, I'll, I'll, I'll add. <laughs> to this uh, interview, whether it was This American Life or Radio Lab. Right. And I did check, and it was This American Life that Percy was talking about, the coincidences episode. And not the uh, episode of Radio Lab that I was thinking of, which was about randomness, uh, also known as stochasticity. Um, um, yes, I, I had a question right on the tip of my tongue. and uh, Stick it out. We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know about the tip of the tongue phenomena? That that Because that is a thing that happens to all of us all the time. You're trying to think of somebody's name, or is it Radiolab or This American Life? And you're sure <laughs> you have a guess. So my, my advisor, Fred Mosteller... Um, Every time that happened, and it happened to him a lot, and he was my age, and it happened to him about 50, 60 times a year, he would write down his best guess, you know, I think it begins with T. And then he would go the extra mile and actually see what it was, because, you know, we could figure out any of those things. And he found he was right about half the time. Really? Yeah, so there's a lot of wisdom in that mm. in that tip of the tongue mm. uh, phenomena, mm-hmm. and it is uh, it is something that psychologists have studied. So that you know, there's a lot of cognitive mm. wisdom mm. that we don't have access to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm. but it, it was because I remembered him doing it. You know, we would be talking. He said, "Wait a second, I'm going to write that down. I can't remember the guy's name." And uh, but but he he did he did the experiment. Uh, it took him a year. Well, <laughs> when it happens to me, I can feel the object beginning to just sort of push through the curtain of unconsciousness. And I can sort of see its outline, you know, but I can't quite identify it. Yeah, I know it's, it's wonderful. There. Yeah. And the, and the <laughs> thing is, it's not just our making it up. That is there, there is now there's this, this interesting quantification. There, there's, well, you know, there's something there. And, oh yeah. Uh, cause, cause often, no well, doubt. first of all, often, you know, 
five minutes from now, I'll say, oh yeah, you're right. It was, uh, it was, uh, but I actually don't, I don't remember. I think I don't remember because I was really annoyed at them because they, they took two hours of time, you know, doing recording and asking questions and very lively conversation and that, you know, it all went on the cutting That won't floor. happen to this. Well, that's good. <laughs> um, that's good. Bless you. <laughs> and while you were talking, I managed to recover the thought, the question that I was about to ask, right. which is, I wanted you to square your um, your role, at least what you used to do as a performing magician, enchanting people with this disenchantment of debunking that also, you know, <laughs> also is something you like to do. Yeah, that it, it is tough. And um, so I give a public talk about coincidences. And um, <clears throat> Fred used to call the talk I gave uh, a nye-nye talk. Yeah, it's not so surprising. <laughs> and the line I use at the end of the talk is, I find it just as wonderful that a handful of simple mathematical ideas can illuminate our day-to-day experience and and that one Mm. idea the law of truly large numbers or the law of of small numbers can explain you know coincidences in young synchronicity it can explain uh, radioactive decay and it it, it can explain all kinds of things i find that wonderful uh, and and just as exciting as the magic of coincidences but it is a downer, I've got to tell you, because I have it happen at parties. You know, somebody will say, well, I understand you're a skeptical guy. Can I tell you about this? And you say, well, wait a second. You know, couldn't it be this or this or this? And the conversation ends, boom, and, and they wander uh, away. And uh, we'll worse, stick- worse is people come up to me and say, you know, there was this magic trick I saw. And, I, you know, and you can tell me and I have to say, I can't tell you. And that's also a downer because, you know, we're all dying to tell people what we do and uh but i i promised and you can't tell I can't but you tell. did do some telling in your book um the one we sure. talked about earlier mathematical magic right it's true and we seem to have gotten away with that because the magical community can be vicious in its reaction but one way we got out of it is the tricks we explained were tricks we invented Oh, and that that was a that there's, was a, there's a few classics in there too. There are, but those are things that are really in common knowledge. There, that's true. But but in that case, our analyses are went way beyond what anybody did, and and I think people think we're teachers of mathematics, and that's okay. But it's true <laughs> that uh, the magical community can really be. They can turn on you and... Uh, I bet. Oh, yeah. Uh, they have their people out, right? Looking for you. <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I reversed the, the order of the words in the title. It's Magical Mathematics. Again, the mathematical ideas that animate great magic. And um, I dipped into it before uh, coming in here. I thought you might quiz me, so I did a, <laughs> did a quick survey and started trying some of the tricks that you explain in great detail in the book. What's the very first one in the book? Is it the little Hummer? Yeah, the baby Hummer. Baby Baby Hummer. Hummer. Baby Hummer. And I won't try to explain the trick here, but it consists in identifying a card in a stack of cards and then doing a lot of manipulations. Seemingly random. Seemingly random. Cut it anywhere you want or don't cut it. Flip over the top two cards. Or don't. Or don't. But actually, nevertheless, after mixing up the cards in all these different ways, you can still identify that one card that you saw at the beginning. It, ha- it is the one card that's turned that is, opposite all of the others. All of the cards are the facing others. one way, and, and the card that you were thinking of is facing the opposite way. Right? Yes, and it is, really, it defies comprehension, at least for a guy like me. 
even after watching myself perform it. That's wonderful. I'm, thank you for telling me that. It, it's great. And, and I looked at a few more of the tricks, and, and they all revolve around the ones that I looked at. The fact that structure persists uh, among these cards, relationships persist, despite a lot of attempts to right. to break them, to mix them up. That's a very nice. That's a very nice way of putting it. When I do that, and you know, I was thinking, we we probably won't try it, but you could almost try to do that trick for the radio audience at home. You know, if if we wanted to, we could say, <laughs> would everybody go find four cards, and we could try doing it. It's a little bit long, and let's let's not unless you decide you'd like to take take our word for it, audience, and or or buy the book, which is available electronically as well that's, as physically. That's that's all true. But but one feature of it is it it's because it's something that is is sort of very important in physics too. That that is that systems that seem to be making a mess out of things the way life goes on there are invariants energy is preserved by New- newtonian dynamics mm-hmm. and there are there are things that are invariant that even though you you think that a mess is being made and there's no structure there are things that are, remain invariant and that that somehow finding the invariants is a basic mathematical activity and and this trick is is the simplest example i know of of that What's wonderful about it is that even grown-ups, I mean, you know, you're a grown-up, it's four cards, I right? Know, I and know. and you know, how can it be, you know, and we do explain it and you could, but it it's got a a real depth to it and you can get the the feeling of what it's like to do mathematics by trying to understand that trick. It's not obvious like some of the tricks that kids do for their parents and stuff like that or that parents do for their kids. And once you see aha that's almost as magical as the trick itself. You know, I see how it works. You know, ah, there's an invariant. And it just, for me, that's just as magical as, as the trick when you, when you first see it. You know, the one problem with mathematical magic tricks, because magic has many different principles that it, sure. that it leans on. And yeah. there's sleight of hand, there's apparatus, there's psychology. And yes. we're kind of limited to try to just use one aspect. And, and uh, we did the best we could, but the best tricks combine all of those aspects. And, well, so it's, it's a humble view of magic, but uh, I'm happy I did it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason it astounds people like me is... The fact that we don't have good statistical intuition, we don't have a good grasp of patterns and structures that are, you know, at that level of complexity. Uh, so there's another one. Can you explain? Is it pronounced Gilbreth? Gilbreth. Yeah. Yeah. The Gilbreth principle. Yes, I can. Uh, first of all, the easiest way to try the the trick out at home is to is to get either a deck of cards or a set of cards and prearrange them so that they alternate red, black, red, black, red, black, red, black. So it, it, it could just be that you take 20 cards and you have 10 reds and 10 blacks and you arrange them so that they alternate red, black, red, black from the top down. Now, um, if you cut those cards, think about that for a second. If you take a, a packet of cards and they alternate, if you cut them, they'll still alternate. Yes. And that's first thing takes, you know, no matter how many times you cut them, they still alternate. Okay. So you can, I can tell you, cut the cards as many times as you like. Okay. Now there's a, there's a step which I'm just going to detail. Deal the top cards, the cards down one at a time onto the table. Stop whenever you like. So you can deal three cards down. You can deal half the deck. You can deal 90% of the cards. Deal them into a pile on the table, reversing their order. So you have two piles of cards. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
cut you've cut as many times as you like now you've dealt two piles of cards now take those two piles and riffle shuffle them together the usual way of riffle shuffling like that is you just <laughs> shuffle the cards together and so and you're not a neat shuffler you might be a neat shuffler but shuffle them any way you like just the way that people shuffle cards the two piles get shuffled together so it would seem as if they're Cut at random, they're dealt, you stopped whenever you wanted, you riffle them together the way card players shuffle cards. It would seem as if there wouldn't be any structure. Well, if you turn up the top two cards, for sure, there'll be one red and one black. Throw them away. Look at the next two cards. There'll be one red and one black. Throw them away. Every pair of cards has one red and one black. So no matter how you shuffle, no matter how you cut, that structure that you know persists. Yes. Now... The, the, They're some, no longer necessarily alternating, right. but each pair has a black and a red card in it. Absolutely. And and so, first of all, that's qu- quite surprising. It is. And it, and it takes, when I, I teach a course at Stanford called Mathematics and Magic Tricks, and uh, one of the homework problems the first day is try to figure out how that trick works and write down a proof of it. Write down a, a, you know, a clear, intelligent argument for why it's true <sighs> and almost no students can get that right uh it's not so hard to to show that no matter what you do that after your shuffle the top two cards will have one red and one black but then to get that the next two cards will be one red and one black and that it keeps going i almost never have had anybody succeed in that now there's a different kind of problem which is one of the things we try to explain in the book and it's a creative problem that trick done that way, it's okay, you know, <laughs> but how to make that into something that really is performable, that has some life, that keeps people entertained, that isn't just some dry piece of mathematics, that's a different problem. And there are ways of doing it, and we explain some of those in the books, but in the book, but that's not a math problem. That's mm. a mm. how to make something out mm. of, you know, uh, out of nothing, how to uh. make a, how to take this tape recorded conversation and make a radio <laughs> program out of that. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you mentioned all those principles at work in various kinds of magic. There are some that depend on mathematics. Uh, there are some that depend on optical trickery, yep. uh, sleight of hand, and there's some that depend on other psychological effects. Yes. But they all depend on human fallibility, human yep. blind spots, assumptions, biases, weaknesses. It's true. If you were Superman, you would be maybe harder to fool, but maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like to try. But it's an, uh, almost an exploration when you're performing and finding out what works. It's almost an exploration of all the holes in in human psychology. Human psychology, our understanding. And there has been now, there has been recent effort uh, by psychologists to try to start to quantify um, the psychology of magic. I don't think it's gone very far, and it's more, you know, gee whiz, look at this, I can take, n- you know, n- neuron readings and see what oh, fires yeah, yeah. up when people, <laughs> there's a long way to go, you know, but, you know, between our, our, our current understanding of the brain, what makes a good magic trick, I think that's a thousand years away uh, from now, but um, magicians have acquired a lot of street wisdom, and the spies try to use us. So uh, I've done consulting for various agencies, uh, perhaps better nameless here, but uh, people who who study deception. 
how does somebody get through an airport line? How can we tell? So TSA. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you said it, not me. Uh, how, you know, how can somebody study whether somebody's trying to carry something on, on, on a plane? How can we study if somebody uh. who's meeting the crowd is dangerous? You know, what can we learn from magicians about deception? Because deception is in every area. And, uh, and so there's been lots of uh, f- federal funding uh, for, of magicians. For guys like you. Yeah. That's right. Wow, and, and not uh, necessarily based on your mathematics at all. No, no, no. Based on trying to study deception. And uh, a colleague, Ray Hyman, uh, who's a uh, psychologist at, at the University of Oregon, is uh, just uh, you know a real champ at, 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 at doing that. And if you start to look, you know, at, at conferences on deception, you'll see they often try to rope magicians in. And uh, yeah. um, we have something to say. There's some knowledge. Um, it's. It's been pretty hard the the quantification. Uh, I think that we, it's it's just as shallow as as most quantification of psychology. Uh, human psychology, animal psychology is very very complicated. It's hard stuff, and they study little pieces of it in the lab as best they can. But it, often the connection between what we can learn by asking college students to react to experiments in the lab and the psychology of human interaction is pretty far. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's just, to be honest, I'm not making, making fun of anybody, but there's a long way to go until we have a good understanding of the way we react to other people. Well, you see that very, very starkly in, you know, if somebody's trying to study magic, maybe they'll do an experiment with which studies somebody's saccadic eye movements, uh-huh. you know, and and well, you learn something from that, but but you know, it's just very different from really what makes something fool you viscerally and fool you in a deep way where people are shocked by a magic trick. It's just it's it's the 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 distance to go is 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 very great. What's the worst you've ever been snookered? Ooh, um, well, one time uh, I'll tell that story. Uh, so it's. Partially how I got my job at Stanford. Uh, <laughs> there was a, there still is uh, an Israeli psychic named Uri Geller. Oh, very famous. Uh, yeah. Very famous. And some physicists at Stanford Research Institute uh, were doing uh, experiments with Geller. And that contract, which was being paid for by the federal government, was monitored by the Jet Propulsion Labs. Uh, and they hired me to go watch the experiments. So I was presented as a statistician, and I went and watched Geller snooker, as you say, these physicists, and it was shocking <laughs> uh, how 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 bad, because people who are very skillful at doing sophisticated experiments with lasers, but have no experience with dealing with trickery or fraud or somebody who would have an assistant in the other room signaling them, you know, that's not on their radar, right? Um, so... At one time, I drove Geller up to the airport, and so he he said, you know, you know, come on in, let's have a cup of coffee. And uh, we were sitting in the coffee shop. He had an hour to go, and he said, "You don't believe me, do you?" And I said, "Well, to be honest, no. Uh, I think you know, I'm I'm pretty skeptical, and it's hard to hard to accept some of the things that they claim for you." And he said, "Well, I'd like to try." I'd like to try an experiment with you. Do you mind? And I said, no, sure. <laughs> and he and, knew your background. No. Oh, he, he didn't. didn't know my background. Oh. He didn't know my background. He thought I was a statistician, but he could, you know, you can tell if somebody's looking at you all the time or, you know, he was a, he's a very clever guy. And um, he said, but do you have 
keys in your pocket? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you know what keys are on your keychain? I said, yeah. He said, well, think of one of your keys and try to make it a key that you think would be easy for me to bend with my mind. He said, I'm just going to, I'm not going to touch anything. <laughs> and I said, okay. And, and then he said, can you get your keys? Are they in your pocket? And I said, yeah. And I took my keys out as I'm doing now. And here they are. And I, 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 I held them and he said, hold them tightly in your hand. And he said, hold your hand above your head. And he, and now he was standing and he had on his stage performer, per, per, you know, persona. And people said, that's Uri Geller. And, you know, there was a crowd gathered around us at the, this is at San Francisco airport in the, okay. And I've got my hand on my keys. And uh, he said, do you feel your hand getting warm? All of me was getting warm. You know, it's pretty <laughs> embarrassing. And he said, uh, well, concentrate on the key that you're thinking about. And I was concentrating. I tried to concentrate it. And he said, you know, open your hand. And one of the keys on my keychain was bent at right angles. And it was the key I was thinking about. And for, I'll say, five minutes, I was as badly fooled as I've been fooled in my life. And then it snapped to, so let me do a word of explanation. Um, uh, Uri had driven up and sat in the back of my car <laughs> with my jacket and my second set of keys. I had car keys and I had my house keys, which were in my jacket. Uh-huh. When we left the car, um, it was a warm day, and I was going to leave my jacket in the back of the car. And he said, oh, take your jacket. It's cold in San Francisco. Okay. When he was in the back of the car, he'd done all kinds of things to the stuff in my jacket. He'd taken an envelope, turned it inside out, and put it back into my jacket. <laughs> right? You know, just it's Uri Geller, right? And uh, he'd taken a key, and he'd bent it. Now, it was, my keys are Stanford keys, which are these big, thick keys. Uh. And one of the keys was a wimpy little key, which would have been pretty easy to bend. And he said, think of a key that would be easy to bend. And I did that experiment. And then he made me take my jacket out, and all of a sudden, I snapped to, after five minutes of thinking, <laughs> what was that about? And no, I didn't say anything. I was thankful to him. It was a wonderful experience. But that says, as badly fooled as I've been, because I was watching like a hawk. You know, and, right. and, and he got me, but he got me for five minutes. Um, I did a lot of watching with Geller, uh, watching of Geller, and uh, he was a wonderful psychologist. And uh, um, pretty much, um, I'm not fooled by magic, but there's a parallel thing, which I talk about because it's just interesting, and it's about intuition. So, um, you know, is there such a thing as intuition? Well, you know, women's intuition, intuition. So I'm, for example, supposed to have probabilistic intuition. You know, there are all kinds of questions, trick questions, paradoxes, and I'm supposed to be a guy who, when I hear a new problem, I say, oh, no, 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 no like that. <laughs> but in fact, what I learned about it is it's nothing like that. And so just to explain, my wife, who's a statistician, has a website which is called uh, Probability by Surprise. If you type it in, you'll find it. It's a wonderful, wonderful website. And she'd heard some new probability paradoxes. And she said, well, you know, hey, what do you think about this one? And it was some paradox that I'd never heard about. And my first reaction was completely wrong. And it, it shocked me, but I realized that over the years, I've been privy to, first of all, I read a lot of things, but I had Martin Gardner as a source, and any crazy new paradox that came in, somebody fed to him, and he'd, and he'd run it by me. And so I would have seen it before. So when somebody came up with a supposedly new problem, I heard it before. 
So sure, I had good intuition about it. It's the same with magic tricks. I read about them. I've studied it for 40 mm. years. <laughs> of course, there's not going to be something new under the sun, you know, because we all gossip with each other. And even if it's an exciting new thing, somebody will get it to me. And so this thing about intuition, I now have a feeling that it's just, you've seen it before and it's memory. And of course, there are variations. You mm. know, somebody will tell you something and you make a variation. But I, 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 I'm very interested in whether there is any such thing as intuition at all, or it's, you know, wisdom and memory and pre-exposure. And so uh, it, it, it doesn't happen. It's almost never happened that I'm fooled by a by a trick, but I think it's just because I talk to all the experts and if there's some hot, you know, thing, somebody calls me and tells me about it, asks me about it. And so I've been pre-warned. And so. <laughs> now, now audiences who you performed for loved being tricked by you, I'm sure. Do you like being tricked or does it feel uncomfortable? Oh, it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> it makes it makes me uncomfortable. There's all kinds of performance styles. Some people have a performance style where they're telling a story. You know what I mean, and they're weaving a web, and and uh, they're telling a story about you know f- you know four guys who went out in a bar, and then Joe the bartender did this or that, and other people are right in your face. Now this is going to fool you. Hold your left hand. Could I have done? You know they're really taking dead aim, and that's an I don't enjoy that situation, and I I have and I what do you do? You don't want to <laughs> make a fool of somebody. You don't want to make a fool of yourself either. But um, try to play along and and. Uh, well, it's not true that I even enjoy seeing magic. In fact, it's pretty painful to see magic uh, <laughs> because it's often not so so well done. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, no, if you care, it's like it's like a serious violinist hearing somebody exactly. playing the violin. Yeah. If I see a street performer, but of course, every once in a while, you see a street performer and it makes your heart go pitter-patter. Yeah, yeah. It's just wonderful. Uh, well, how did it feel during that five minutes, that brief five minutes when Yuri Geller had you bamboozled? Oh, my heart was going ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. <laughs> and, you know, my, my face was, you know, do I feel warm? I'm changing colors you know everybody's looking you're you know he's standing on a chair i've got my hand over my head every you know all, all the customers are stopped and uh, <laughs> uh so of course you know you're in the you're in the middle of something and i was enjoying it too uh, you know how is he going to get out of this but then the the feeling of visceral shock uh when the key i was thinking of was bent <laughs> i mean i you know that's one that i will carry with me for the rest of my life um uh, oh, so so I'm, why do people like that sensation well not everybody does so i i have had for example girlfriends and i take out three pieces of rope and they'd say i hate magic <laughs> so you know when i ran away from home which i did at the age of 14 i was the assistant of the maybe the greatest exponent of pure sleight of hand dave vernon his name was and um i hung around his house before that and and so dave vernon was the greatest living magician at the time and he had a kid and uh you know, you're never a hero in your own home, right? And uh, so the kid wouldn't eat his spinach. And his wife, Jean, said, if you don't eat your spinach, I'm going to have your father show you a card trick. And the kid went, <laughs> So not everybody likes to see magic. <laughs> well, that's understandable, being the, the kid of a magician. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, you ran off at, at 14. You were already a complete devotee of magic by that time. And Dave Vernon, very famous, the professor he was known as. Yep. So why did he take you? Well, or why you did know, he want you? 
He I, invited I, you, right? I, yes, absolutely. I guess the truth is I was a talented kid, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, it doesn't feel that way to me, but there uh, must, must be some truth in it. Um, I was practicing morning, noon, and night, uh, hanging around and, and putting all my energy in. Uh, uh, he took me as his assistant, as, as, as somebody he knew had the bug. I mean, somehow, you know, you meet people and, and, uh, and some people, you know, have talent and have their heads around it and it's their whole life and you can talk to them and they understand you. And we, we were on a common, a common wavelength and, uh, he enjoyed it. Uh, so even the secretive magician wants to share sometimes. Yeah, uh, I haven't had that experience. Oh, really? Curious. I no apprentice. I haven't had an apprentice. I have friends that I share magic with. That I, you know, a handful of them, uh, you know, maybe less than a handful. And I have youngsters who come up and come around, and I just don't want any part of it. Uh, <laughs> I haven't. I just had. You know, I'm I'm a caramudgeon, and uh, I wish it weren't that way. But uh, but you teach math. You speak uh, a lot publicly, so you share in a lot of ways. I do. Yeah, I enjoy that. There's just nothing better than to have a graduate student or a bright undergraduate who's interested in listening and you're on a common wavelength. I have that all day long. I had, I had a wonderful student, Evita. You met Amy. And, you know, they, they ask me questions. And often they're things I've thought about, things I have something to say. And it'll go into their heads. They have a place to put it. And they'll pass it on. It's a great, great experience. I just... Magic, I've been burned so often. Uh, I, I just had it happen. Um, uh, so magicians, there's no honor among magicians. So <laughs> it's, it's also true about jugglers. Somehow uh, it, jugglers, if they see one of the greatest jugglers, Michael Motion, a great, great juggler, but, but if somebody watches Michael Motion do a trick that's his signature trick, if they can get it, if they can do it, it's theirs, and they feel free to, free to perform it. Well, magicians, if they can take something that you've worked years on and they make their own rotten version of it, but then they feel free to just go and claim it as their own and not give credit, and it really is a very cutthroat business. And I, ha I just had it happen, and it still, it just got me... Uh, I'd say 40 years ago, I invented a trick with a single card. And it's not so easy to invent to invent a trick with a single card. And I was very proud of it. And I showed it to one guy, Paul Swinford, and he was very taken with it. And he started doing it in his lectures without, you know, telling me or asking permission. And I was heartbroken Aww. by it because it was a thing that I'd worked years on. And I said, Paul, you know, it's breaking my heart. You shouldn't do that. And and okay, so he, wow. he, he, okay, but then about two years ago, a guy wrote me and said, you know, Paul Swinford, 40 years ago, showed me a trick of yours, and I wondered, you know, I made a little vari variation of it, I wondered if you'd mind if I put it into print, and I said, you know, that's a trick I've never explained to anybody, I was heartbroken that Paul did that, I'm planning to put it in the second volume uh, of our book, I don't know if there'll be a second volume, but I didn't, I really didn't want him to do it, I said, please respect me and don't do that and he said that's right he just put it into print as his own trick with no mention of me oh. no mention of the story it just broke my heart it's just somebody you know what a pig-headed <laughs> thing to do to take some elegant beautiful thing that had been kept private and just because you can't think of your own ideas steal somebody else's idea and just stick it out there as your own it just just as a painful thing it happened you know i'd say within the last six wow. months and it's it's somebody who had academic pretensions and it's just such an ugly ugly thing to do mm. uh, so th that has happened to me so often you know you'll 
meet a magician that'll be seem seem to be a you know a, a common spirit somebody who's studying and then you tell them something and out it goes and somebody will call you and say ah oh, i heard you're talking to so and so and it just they can't keep their mouth shut well i got burned often enough i don't i'm just it's it, it's too painful mm. the there's a story that ricky tells but it, it ricky j yeah. ricky j uh that so my my mentor Dave Vernon, you know, spent years thinking about how do I turn over the top card in an elegant way. Ricky tells a wonderful story about watching Vernon outside the Magic Castle. He came up to the Magic Castle, which is a private club for magicians, and Vernon was just standing there. And Ricky, at a distance, was watching him. And Vernon was watching people get out of their cars. And Ricky eventually went up to him after two hours and said, Vernon, what are you doing? And he said, well, I was watching how people put their jackets on after they get out of their cars. He said, nobody does it the same way. He studied what was natural, how people handle things, how do people pick up a deck of cards, how do people deal, how do people do simple things. So he would spend years and then he, instead of putting every variation, he would find the the right variation and, and get it down. Well, he had stuff stolen from him left, right, and center. And Ricky asked him, Professor, how can you stand it? You know, you, you put your heart into this. It's years of study. It's beautiful. You get it right. And then some, some animal comes and just, you know, puts it out there. And, and Vernon said, well, I've trained myself not to care. Mm. Uh, and I, I haven't. Mm. I, I, I haven't trained myself not to care. My friend Tom Waters, who was a, who was a writer who wrote a, a very good encyclopedia of magic, uh, T.A. Waters, he, he asked me why I'm so secretive. And he, he reports that I answered without thinking, well, we don't want the animals using tools. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You mentioned that magicians steal, jugglers steal. I uh, did an interview a couple of weeks ago, aired it, uh, with a tap dancer. And I was remarking on one of sort of the classic movements in tap dance where you're crossing the feet over, putting one foot in front of the other. And he said, you know why we do that? To hide our steps from other tap dancers who will steal. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> so in math, it's a real no-no in academia. If somebody hears a lecture and somebody else, you know, takes those results and, and publishes it, they're, they're, they're just, you know, banned, they're scorned, they're, they're vilified. And the evidence is right there in print. Right, yeah. right, right. And, uh, or, no, so my colleague, Charles Stein, isn't a paper factory. Maybe he wrote 50 papers in his lifetime, maybe fewer. But he would do beautiful things, he would give lectures, and the community is very protective of that. That is, if, if you heard it in a lecture, you say, I heard this in a lecture of Charles Stein's, it's his credit idea, where credit this is, is my, yeah. my development, and, yeah. and magicians just don't do that. And, uh, <laughs> so, you, you ran away from home at 14, went and studied with Dave Vernon, your friend Ricky Jay, very famous, also magician, he ran away too. Yes, he and he did. studied with Day too. Yes, he did in a in a different way. Uh, Ricky was a, a performing magician, performed all over the place, and then in, in seventy four, when he was in his twenties, he moved to California to be in Vernon's orbit. Uh, uh-huh. And a lot of people did that. I, I mean, I'd say, you know, half a dozen of the best sleight of hand performers in the world moved to California to be in Vernon's orbits, and some took jobs, and some Ricky lived in Venice and would travel around but and so he he did he did apprentice with Vernon in 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 that way Ricky had a different 
uh, a different thing, which was wonderful. His grandfather, uh, who was a fascinating guy named Max Katz, Max Katz Bright, um, was a wealthy New York City accountant and uh, um, was a very serious amateur magician. And he knew good from bad, and he would get the best magicians to give little Ricky lessons. And so when Ricky was seven, he was, you know, getting tutoring by the best performers. And, uh, well, that's a, that's a wonderful opportunity. And, uh, and so he also had, you know, real lessons. And then later the kind of camaraderie that, that I had, he had, he had, he had very good, uh, very good background and he's done done wonderful things with it. Uh, I, I was struck by what might be just a completely specious sort of um, connection or, or similarity, which is that you guys both sort of split with your families. You both ran off to become real magicians. You're both top-notch, world-class, uh, studied with the same guy. No, I'm not going to say this is a coincidence, uh, oh. but I am interested in the psychology. Are you guys similar personality types? Is there something about you? There's some, of course, there's some similarities. We're both, you know, practaholics. We both pr- love practicing. We both uh, love secrets. Uh, I taught, I taught Ricky uh, about collecting. Uh, he claims, I claim, maybe too. Uh, he was living in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when I was a graduate student, and we we must have met as kids, but we knew about each other. I'd seen him on the Johnny Carson show, and then he got in touch somehow when I was just starting graduate school in 1971 at, at, I was at Harvard, and and then I was making the rounds of the old bookstores, and he didn't know what collecting was about, and so he would come with me, and then, you know, there's a way you talk to people, there's a way you, you know, find what's there, there's a way you go into the corners, and, and we did that week after week, month after month, and uh, now he's a you know, superb collector, superb historian, and uh, I, I learned from him, and I get his discards, uh, and I'm thrilled with them. Uh, he'll often, you know, he said, oh, well, wow. somebody offered me this and, you know, do you want it? I've got one. Uh, so we, we have that going for us. We both like subtlety. We both like keeping secrets. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of similarities. I, th- I think you two have both said in different places also that you left your families of origin and that, you know. And never went back, both And never us. went back. Right. And, and that the magic community became your family. Right. I don't want to get too prying and just well, refuse the question if you don't like it, but why did you split with your family at the age of 14? There's two parts of that story. It was pretty unhappy household, people yelling and screaming and, and just not, not a happy place to, to grow up. But, uh, but really it was, you know, the best sleight of hand worker in the world said, come on the road with me. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I, I, a I boy's would, dream. I, yeah. yeah I Unbelievable. Would, I, I, I would do it again in, 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 in a minute. You know, if I, it was just, there was, there's no, never been a seconds, uh, you know, oh, should I have done that? It just, uh, uh, there was no 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 possible uh, choice, uh, and I think Ricky also had a you know a tough upbringing and and didn't didn't get on with his parents and just left to to get away from a rotten upbringing. Uh, uh, he I had I had a I had two families uh, when I started. Ma- magic was very protective. You might think you know a fourteen year old runaway kid, all kinds of bad things could happen. Oh to yeah, you, you know. Yeah. And, you know, pedophiles, this and that, ophiles, and, oh, and uh, you're dealing with shady characters right, in casinos, right? And, and nothing whatnot. bad, nothing yeah. like that ever happened to me <laughs> at all. It just people were were gracious. They'd put you up. They'd you know sometimes try to give you advice. They made sure you had a good meal. You know, people would notice that you need a haircut and manage to get you one. And uh, uh, 
Uh, and I noticed, though, that when I left the magic scene and I'd started undergraduate college, um, I I would hang around. There was a math table and at City College in New York, the big free school. And for me, that was also a family. That is, there were other kids, and I could just hang around and be at home and talk shop. And uh, and so the mathematics is also very much a, a family, and, mm. and uh, we understand each other. <laughs> In our own way, we're keepers of secrets. You can you know you can only talk to another professional mathematician about mathematics, and you know otherwise it just doesn't mean anything to anybody. I suppose it's like poets talking to each other, or. <laughs> or I don't know. Although they can be cattier than mathematicians are. <laughs> um, you, for a while, I read, is this correct, were a little bashful, though, in mathematical circles about your magical past? That's true. When I started to realize that I really did want to do mathematics as a living, I didn't want to rest on my laurels. I didn't want to be the guy who does card tricks or something. I wanted to be known for my mathematical, my statistical accomplishments. And so I decided I wasn't going to tell anybody about my magic. And to this day, I never do tricks around the department or, you know, if I'm asked, well, there's a party <laughs> or something. You know, the only time I do tricks is if somebody broke an arm or a sister is dying of some disease, could I come over and do, of course, you know. But if I do tricks for you, you're likely to be in pretty bad shape. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, so, but um, I had just come to Stanford, 1974, and I'd vowed, you know, nobody was going to know about my magic background. And I went up to the library, which is on the fourth floor of this building, and uh, a great probabilist, Paul Levy, a great French probabilist, had his collected works had just come out. So there's six volumes in French. My French is impossible. Uh, and I picked up a volume at random, and I opened it at random. And there was the equation for perfect shuffling of cards. So to explain a little bit, magicians and I can take a deck of cards, cut them exactly in half, and drop them one, 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 and just perfectly shuffle them so that they alternate perfectly. And now you might ask, so what? Well, try to think about this. If I have four aces on top of the deck, and if I shuffle them perfectly... The aces are every second card. <laughs> yes. They're no more random than they were when you started. That's right. <laughs> and if I shuffle them again perfectly, the aces are every fourth card. And if I deal four hands out, one, two, three, four, I get the aces, right? So magicians and gamblers are interested in perfect shuffles because you can do stuff with them. Yeah. Now, if you ask the question, aha, is there a way of perfectly shuffling, you know, shuffling so that you could deal out five hands and get the aces? That's a math problem. It's mm -hmm. really a math problem, and it's not such an easy math problem. So I had done a lot of stuff in my magic days about mathematics of perfect shuffling cards. I picked up this book of Paul Levy's, opened it at random, and there was the equation for perfect shuffling of cards. I let out a whoop, you know, when people look at you. Nobody had any idea in magic and math that Levy had worked on this problem. He'd written 20 papers about the mathematics of shuffling cards. They were very interesting papers. No mathematician could read them because they didn't know about what shuffling cards was about. And, of course, no magician could read them because they were math. And I said, if Paul A.V. could write papers about shuffling cards, it's okay. I can do it, too. Uh -huh. I went public with the mathematics of shuffling cards. I made a math problem out of it. We got on the, it's work I did with Ron Graham and Bill Cantor. Um, we got on the front page of the New York Times. They're, they're eager for shuffle, for stories about mathematics that readers can understand. Magicians finally analyze perfect shuffling and 
Well, your secret was out. Yeah, my secret was out. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm happy I did the work, and uh, uh, it didn't it didn't do me any harm. And uh, there is such a thing as randomness, because you opened that book at random. <laughs> well, so let's think about that. So it was a coincidence. It really affected my life. Uh, and now you say, and it's six volumes. Here's my best explanation of that. And this is me and my statistics nerd costume, but and applied at least to myself. Paul Levy was a very interesting guy. He was interested in all kinds of things. I'm interested in all kinds of things. If I'd opened that book almost any place, whatever he did <laughs> would have been interesting to me. You know, it happened to be this, but if I opened it at other places, he did all kinds of funny things. And uh, I have gone back and, and, and tried that experiment. And almost any of his papers, I think, oh, I didn't know he worked on that. Isn't that interesting? What did he do? And And so... You know, the the it's it's pretty hard to get very many points on your coincidence meter uh, for 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 that one. Well, all I can say, Percy, is yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> By the way, would you like your wallet back? <laughs> hey, wait a second. <laughs> Mathematician Percy Diaconis is the Mary V. Sunseri Professor of Statistics and Mathematics at Stanford University. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. We'll be back on these airwaves uh, with a high degree of probability next week. And we are always online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, on iTunes, and via your choice of mobile podcast apps. So you can listen anytime you dang well please. Uh, and we're going to end here with a kind of audio postscript. This is a portion of the interview uh, that got a little bit technical. So I sort of plucked it out of the early going and uh, moved it to the end here for those of you who are interested. It's a place where I asked Percy to tell me more about his uh, first published physics paper. And he also described a very cool and trippy statistical technique involving something called Stein's paradox, discovered by his uh, colleague at Stanford, Charles Stein. It's theoretical stuff you're doing? Well... The first thing I did was theoretical. It was about Bose-Einstein condensation, which are these this, this wonderful thing that they call particle lasers. And uh, indeed, we can see from here, if you look out the window, there's uh, a group in the physics department, and they're redoing Galileo's experiment in the sense that Galileo took a cannonball and a feather, put them each in a box, and then dropped them, and they dropped at the same speed. That's shocking if you first hear about it, but but it, you know that that was a, a fundamental tenant of basic mechanics. Well, apparently, if you drop things and they're very very cold, it's not true anymore. And uh, they take this Bose-Einstein condensates, and now it's ten to the minus seven Kelvin. So zero is you know zero Kelvin, and ten to the minus seven. It's really cold, and uh, and they they have a two-story corridor in the physics department, and they're dropping this stuff and then measuring how fast it drops and, and trying to see if, if Galileo's original experiment is... And I don't know what the current state is, mm. but the way I get myself to understand anything is to make little math problems out of it, and then I can... Working on the math problems, I have to understand what the physicists are talking about. I found some math problems that I did with a colleague here, Shoraf Chatterjee, and uh, we're, we found something that apparently was new and maybe even interesting and to physicists. And, and uh, so I had to then read an awful lot of physics papers. <clears throat> but that was theory. 
And when I'll really understand it is if I get some data, if I get some numbers or, mm-hmm. you know, here are my measurements. I did it a hundred times that in order to understand the numbers, I'll have to, you know, understand the physics in a way that I, I don't know. So I, I, I do need some hands on. I wouldn't mind working on an experiment. I, I try to do some of that when I was on sabbatical because there was, there was wonderful work on both sense and condensation in Toulouse also. And, uh, we should probably explain just enough um, to clear sure. up a mystery about that. First of all, the um, cannonball and the feather will fall at the same rate in a vacuum. Right. Uh, n- not if there's air involved. But if you ever see this done, it is so counterintuitive to see a feather drop as fast as <laughs> right. It's just <laughs> the shocking. Cannonball. It's just it's, it's it's just shocking and good good for you for 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 cleaning that up. And apparently, he dropped them off the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which wasn't leaning so much. It couldn't so have much. done. The, it couldn't have worked though. <laughs> the feather would have floated. Well, no, slowly. they no, but they can put it in a box, okay. you know, and and, and, and evacuate then, it. Right. And, okay. And try try to do that. And, and the other little mystery: this Bose-Einstein yes. condensation. You're saying that. Uh, you know, I mean, it's basic Newtonian law that they should fall at the same rate, right, uh, at any temperature. So what is this Bose-Einstein condensation? Well, okay, Bose-Einstein condensation is about this roughly. If you have some kind of metallic atom like sodium or something like that, and you cool it way, way down, a, f- a few thousand atoms, okay? It's not millions and millions, it's a few thousand now, they cool it down. Normally, when stuff is very cold, different atoms act independently. Somehow they get into lockstep, and so they all behave in the same way. Mm. And that's it's just shocking physically, and it's something that was predicted by Einstein from mathematics 80 years ago, a little bit longer, and it was found in the 1990s, uh, and two Nobel Prizes were given for it. You know, ordinarily, if you have a lot of atoms, they bop around the way atoms do. And these aren't on a crystal or anything, so they're not touching each other. But somehow, they all start acting in the same way. And now, there's all kinds of practical implementations of that. And they're, they're hoping that it'll be as productive as, as, as the laser was. You know, when the laser was first invented, everybody said, well, what's that good for? And now, it's just all over the place. Uh, I'm not an expert in the physics of it, but I wanted to understand it when I was teaching it. I thought, what is this about? You know, what's the mystery of it? And and so I made a little math problem. You can say it in terms of dropping balls into boxes. And um, with Shoruff, we asked questions that are natural to somebody who's a professional probabilist and not so natural if you're a physicist. And the answers are a little surprising. And the physicist said, yeah, that's, we didn't know that. They wow. never say that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was very proud. <laughs> and, and why does uh, it affect the rate at which objects would fall? I don't know. So <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't know. But it's just next door, and I'm thinking, <laughs> if I'm brave enough, I can knock on the door, and maybe if I put my dumb statistician hat on, they'll talk to me, and uh, I can get some data. And the thing is, you'd think everybody, physicists want to analyze their own data, but uh, we know things about data uh, and analyzing data, and it's come a long way uh, in the last you know, few hundred years. And I think maybe using modern statistical techniques, I might be able to help them analyze their data better than what they're, what they're doing now. I'd like to try to do that, bring the, the, the latest in modern statistics into their lab. And if I'm allowed to tell a story uh, about 
analyzing data, just to say, because this is it's it's shocking if you haven't heard it. Um, so suppose I want to measure how tall you are, Robert, and um, I have a tape measure and I measure, and I don't know, maybe you're a little less than six feet. I'm just going to guess, but it's something like that. And maybe I do it ten times. You know, I measure you again, I measure you again, you know, from different sides or something. And I've got 10 measurements of Robert. And then I want to know what do I do with those 10 measurements in order to come up with my final best guess. Statisticians do a lot of funny things with numbers. We might take the average of them, but we might throw out the biggest and the smallest and take the average of what's left. Or we might use the middle value, the median. And you could ask, when is one method of averaging better than another? That's a basic question of statistics. The first thing is in order to see whether a certain way of taking an average is, is any good at all, you have to say, what does it mean to get the right answer? Mm -hmm. So let's mm -hmm. suppose, and that's a, we could talk about that for hours. Let's suppose you have a true height. You know, is that actually true? <laughs> we could discuss that for a long time. Let's suppose you, we, you have a true height and let me call it theta. Okay. It's your, your true height. And, uh, uh, and um, so I'm going to have some measurements, and then I'm going to make a guess at your true height. So that uh, uh, a guess is, it, it's a rule which takes a set of 10 measurements, and it takes it into one number, my best guess at your true height. Mm -hmm. And then I have to say what it means to be wrong. And so a standard thing to do is look at the difference between my guess and your true height. And, uh, and then take the difference between those two numbers. And what Gauss said to do was to square it. Okay, look at the squared difference. That's a standard thing people do. Okay, so I have my 10 numbers. I have my guess. Based on those, I have the true height. I square the difference. And now I can ask on the average, that is, there has to be some, you know, if I do this again and again and again, if you want to think about it that way, on the average, how far is my, is my best guess from the truth. And that's called the mean squared error. And okay, so I got that far. And, uh, and now uh, that'll be that'll be some number that depends on how tall you are and depends on the way that I'm averaging. Yeah. Uh, I call an estimator a way of guessing admissible if there's no other way of guessing for which that distance, that means squared error, is smaller for the new way than the old way. Okay. So if there's nothing that, that no matter what your true height is, always does better. So if I'm just trying to estimate your height one number based on, on, on some 10 numbers, the average can't be beat. Okay? The, the average is admissible. There's no mm -hmm. other way of estimating that always does better. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Now suppose I want to estimate your height and your girth. Okay, <laughs> embarrassing, but we'll keep it clean. And uh, so I take 10 measurements of your height. I take 20 measurements of your girth, and they have nothing to do with each other. I'm not supposing they're correlated or, you know, somebody measures your girth, somebody else measures your height. Okay, I want to estimate the two numbers, I, you know, okay. Okay, what else can I do? I'll take the average of the measurements of your girth. I'll take the average of the measurements of your height. And those, that's my best estimate of mm -hmm. those two parameters, mm -hmm. okay? That's admissible. There's nothing that does uniformly better. Now, finally, this is where it stops. I want to estimate your height, your girth, and your shoe size, okay? 10 measurements of your height, 20 measurements of your girth, and 15 measurements, all independent mm -hmm. of your sh shoe size. The fact is there's something better to do 
then just take the average of the three estimators. And it's better. It's, it's more accurate. And, and it's, not, I'm not, it's not tiny. It's 10, 15% better. And it's shocking. It's called Stein's Paradox. And, uh, and any time you have many things that you want to estimate, there's something better to do than the best for each one. It's, it's quite counterintuitive. If these three things are completely... And they're completely independent. Uh, you, right. Yeah. I've, it's mind-boggling. Okay. Right. There's My no correlation. Is, right. I'm and, clueless. I don't understand. I, I, absolutely. And if you type in <laughs> Stein's paradox, you'll find more than, more than you want to know. So, and it's not just in theory. It was invented by a guy, Charles Stein, who's here, wonderful statistician, still with us. Um, but it was invented in theory, but now people use it, for example, in the census, which is coming up, people want to estimate how many people are in each state. Well, that's 50 things you want to estimate. And they take a sample in each state, and there's something better to do than just use the the average for each state. Uh, in, in Bell Laboratories, they want to estimate, you know, defectives, but thousands of different parts, you know, how many defectives does this manufacturing do whenever you have many things you want to estimate there's something better to do than use and the, what is that something what is that something they're <laughs> called they're called shrinkage estimators and uh and roughly speaking um it's it's rough but it's not i think you'll get the idea um so i have the average of the heights, the average of the girths, the average of the foot sizes, those are, that's the naive estimate, let me call it that, the maximum likelihood estimate. I have those three numbers. And what I do is I shrink them towards a, 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 a common value. So I take another value, which might even be zero, but uh, I take another value and I shrink the estimator. So I, I make them a little bit closer to some common other value. And it's it's quite counterintuitive. It's not so easy to understand, but you can try it out and see it working in practice. You can generate fake data. You can try to simulate it on a computer. You can look at real data. They're using it in the government. It's used. The reason for my telling you that is I would tell it to the physicist, too, to say, listen, there's a lot in modern statistics that's beyond least squares. That's beyond what you guys have been doing for 200 years. Maybe some of it is will be useful to you. Let me look at some data. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, Percy, I want to I want to follow up on that. But before I do, I can't quite let this this go. This technique you just talked about. Good. Let's restate it succinctly, and that is that you take three completely independent quantifiable things, mm -hmm. right? Things that are not causally related right. to each other. Right. And you want to take your best guess at what the real measure of them is. And normally you would take a bunch of measurements of one and average those and another bunch of measurements of the other and average those and treat them all independently. Right. You're saying that that averaging is the best thing you could do if you have only, you're only right. measuring one thing. But if you're measuring several, somehow there is this interconnection between these things. Right. And it's what's important, a thing that might help you come to terms with it is that, <laughs> no, because it is it's very, very surprising because it could be apples and oranges. Yes. Um, one thing is that my desiderata is to make, so my loss function, my measurement of how good my whatever procedure I come up with is the sum of the three oh. differences. Okay, so I want, but that is often a thing you want to do. That right. is, you you know, you want you you want to be accurate on each one. Right, you know what I mean. And so right. I'm taking the 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 difference between the the first the, the first guess and the first truth, and the second guess and the second truth, and the third guess and the third truth, and I'm adding up those three differences. And I want to I want I want that to be 
I want that to be as small as possible. So it's it's important to say that the the mean isn't best. Nothing beats it uniformly. Mm. Um, uh, but the mean of the three things, there's something else which is pretty simple to implement, which beats it uniformly. No matter what the three truth true things are, this new estimate is closer. But closer means all three things simultaneously. So somehow yes. the three things are on a common scale. Uh, gotcha, well, I mean, gotcha. Okay. Right, but but you know those are real problems. That is, the 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 populations of states are, in fact, in the case of the census, the it's you know we don't not only want to know the population of each state, we want to know it on the city block level. You uh-huh. know, we want to know populations very locally. You know, right. the census makes forecasts and 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 estimates, so we want thousands of things, and you really can get a big improvement, and right. uh, and they use it. It's counterintuitive. Right. Statistics. But, but it's not pointing to some mysterious entanglement between no. these three things no. or these independent things. No. In fact, it's just saying that you want the best estimate for all three at one time. And Absolutely. There's a way to work with those three together. Right. And that really, really does it for this week's edition of the 7th Avenue Project. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.